Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's gone underground, taken on a secret identity in order to provide you with my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I disguise my voice and they'll never know. This week I look at the July 9th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Uh, but before I get to that, a couple of caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. And secondly, I may have a lot of conflicts of interest, uh, particularly with regard to me uh, trying to sell stocks that I'm recommending that you buy. My lawyers say I have to say that. Uh, third, and this is true, I may be completely uninformed. I'm just paging through value line after work. And fourth, I may be drinking. And uh, again, it's after hours I'm drinking. Um, and that's true this week. So those are the caveats. See all my caveats at www.thevalueguys.com. There's photos, bios, all that kind of stuff. This is, I think, our fifth year of doing the show. And for those of you that are new to listening, it's a simple format. It basically, you know, I'm a long-time professional, but it's after work. I'm having a drink. I'm paging through Value Line, and I'm recording it, what have you. I usually pull three ideas out of each week's Value Line that, to me, look like pretty decent ideas. you got to go do your own work, though. Um, and, uh, and then at the beginning of each show, if I think of one, I do something that I call, it would help my portfolio if... In other words, it's usually, you know, I thought it would be creative. It's usually it's something about taxes, and so it is again this week. Um, I have to uh, apologize uh, for the first time in many years. I've taken a few weeks off during the from the show, so I took a little travel time. Um, for those of you that are listening over time here, you know, we we continue to have this office move about to happen we've got our carpeting so that's going to be happening and um and i took some time off what can i tell you um and so uh you know hopefully you had a chance to listen to some past show which often were better than these shows but what have you um it's been a little bumpy in the market so um you know i think you do have some concern of some kind of double dip um and you see the uh, financial distress in Europe, and that's going to give some people pause. I was just looking, the uh, Russell 2000 value, the value index I follow, is down 18% off the peaks from the week of April 25th. The S&P down about 12% over that same period. So, you know, nothing terrible at this point. Um, I did see something in the paper the other day in the Wall Street Journal that was a little eerie, so you could Google this up. But somebody, had, you know, wrote an article about the eerie similarities between the charts uh, between sort of, I think, 1934 and 1937 and, uh, you know, the last year or so since this recovery has started, uh, particularly in the stock market. And uh, pointed out that the policies that uh, 
took another great leg down in the market back during that Great Depression and eventually led to an 86% total decline from the peaks, which we're nowhere near that. I think at this point uh, we're, you know, what, I'm going to guess a little bit, 20% off the peaks of a couple years ago. Um, so the comparison right now is, uh, you know, it's difficult. But um, the policies back then that led to that final leg down were, you know, a government that uh, wanted to punish business for the excesses, so started to put a lot of regulation on them, a lot of uh, red tape and, you know, punitive taxes. Um, cutting of uh, federal spending, you know, to, to be a little more budget-minded, and raising taxes to pay for it. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't write this article. You can Google it up, but it's eerie in the sense that we're facing those same things here as we move forward. And, um, you know, part of the reason I think the market's so volatile, and so my rant this week would simply be the politicians are not uh, giving investors enough information to make investments, particularly in capital spending. I mean, it's one thing if I've got to be fully invested in my portfolio, I'm going to be, and I'm going to own the best stocks I can, um, you know, in this environment. But I have it easy. People like me have it easy. If you're running a company, and if you look, uh, you know, uh, corporate America has more cash on the balance sheet than they've had since 1950. I think I mentioned this on a past show. And why? Because there's no, you know, it, it, it's a binary distribution. Either we're going to have a tax a code uh, that is, uh, you know, rewards capitalism and risk-taking, path A, or is punitive to capitalism and risk-taking, path B. And, you know, with interest rates where they are right now, you know, those of you that uh, look at the present value of future cash flows, when you've got interest rates as low as they are waiting around, it doesn't cost you a lot right now. It's just a couple percent. It's not like we're in a high inflation environment where if I don't spend my dollar right now, it's only worth 85 cents next year. No. Interest rates this low mean that, uh, you know, a dollar five years from now might be worth you know, 90 cents instead of uh, in a high inflation environment, a dollar now, five years from now, might be worth a quarter. So people are just waiting around. And I think a lot of the activity we've seen over the last, you know, year, call it really, that's helped propel the market, uh, certainly preventing the banks from going broke was key. And the reversal of the mark to market law that um, you know helped to reestablish capital in the lending institutions was pretty critical to the free fall but in terms of just the growth in GDP a lot of that has been just replenishing inventories that plummeted at a time when um, uh, business uh, people were you know fearful and so their first reaction was to uh, you know put the brakes on inventory so that's being replenished but now um, you know ultimately GDP growth is employment times uh, productivity, and if employment's down, um, you know, we have been in a period of great productivity, but in part that's because we're not rehiring people as GDP grows, and as I've talked about, you know, um, technology is in a state where you can often easily sort of ramp up without people, um, 
And so, uh, but my primary rant this week would simply be, hey, politicians, give us some rules about what our tax is going to be. Um, and, you know, across all fronts, from health care, um, Social Security, um, just the marginal income tax rate, things like that. And states. What's the state income? You know, every state on the planet is talking about raising taxes, every city. And so, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think until that lifts, we're going to be in a sluggish period. And so, again, it would help my portfolio if the politicians could get down the road of making some rules that would at least last for a while. And honestly, I think that might be the great strength of the period from Reagan through Bush through Clinton. Um, and one reason why President Clinton gets a lot of credit for the economy is that it takes a while for things to ramp up. So uh, significant tax cuts that were enacted under Reagan, you know, a couple years into his term, they, it took a while for all that to get going the right direction and for confidence to get to the point where the investments you make today uh, lead to uh, productivity gains a couple, three, four years from now. You know, the capital spending cycle takes time and whipping tax rates around and incentives around um, on a short-term basis, you know, when you're building capacity to manage uh, demand growth for the next uh, five to ten years, it's it's not a good way to maximize uh, the productivity of your economy. So, I don't know. There's my rant. Anyway, let me uh, look at three ideas this week. And again, not page number order. Um, that uh, I had I had listeners, you know, vote down page number order. You might you could tell that it's really bothering me because I I've been paging through Value Line for thirty years, so. No one wants to know the page number? Whatever. So now what order am I going to go in? You know, I don't know. I guess this week it's, uh, I don't know what order it is. I can't really tell. I guess based on my own interest level. So um, first up this week, the week of July 9th, and I did go through, I did sort of page through every stock in this week's issue. And a couple things popped out. You know, it's uncertain times, right? So needs, not wants. And we've been talking about that for some time. And I think it's still true. Now, good balance sheets, of course. First up, Intel, INTC. Um, you know, the first thing that catches my eye on any of these things is the valuation. It's 11 times earnings. Big discount to the market PE. Um you know, they've got, I just look at their cash, they've got $6 billion of cash, $2 billion of debt, so $4 billion in cash. Again, that's a pretty good cushion. On a per share basis, it's not much. they got $6 billion shares, so it's $0.90 cents on a $20 stock. Um, the theme on Intel would simply be that in a segment that they dominate, in some type of a perpetual feedback loop since their R&D budget is higher than the revenue of their next largest competitor. Um, you know, I think that just feeds on itself because it gives you advantages in hiring. And, uh, you know, my view, and I've talked about this for many years, is simply that Intel, in some way, just like 
uh, Microsoft and uh, Apple, although I'm not sure that's a good analogy at the moment since Apple now has a higher market cap than Microsoft. But there was a time when, you know, Microsoft owned a piece of Apple and threw out a lifeline and was much bigger. And, you know, Intel's doing that a little bit to AMD. Um, and so um, uh, I think that uh, they, they, they basically helped to create a, a price structure that the government is going to let you know stand uh, there were some um justice department inquiries into the pricing here a few years ago and right around that same time all of a sudden amd started to have some success in a couple of product lines i don't think that's a coincidence ladies and gentlemen but hey you know maybe it is who knows but what i like here is that uh the operating margin is consistently in the 40 percent level so what does that mean? I like looking at the inverse of that. That means um, if you sell something for $100, you keep $0.40, cents and the costs, your total costs before taxes and interest are $0.60. Cents. So your costs are $0.60. Cents. You're charging a dollar. So that's a 40 over 60 or 67% markup on the costs. So you're doing something pretty proprietary or people would just copy it and you wouldn't be able to charge those prices. And they've been doing it a long time. Well, sure, what it is is, of course, this wonderful giant installed base of computers where Intel chips are running Windows for so many years. And then, you know, a few years ago, even Apple pursuing a strategy of sort of divide and conquer I think successfully obviously but they started uh, running Intel chips on all their devices uh, in order to allow Windows to be installed on Macs it was tremendously successful in their um, in, in eliminating reasons not to own a Mac and helped lead to big surges in market share for the Mac but um, you know Intel is now the only game in town really and you're seeing it in their margin. Now the nice thing is is that the cost of the chip relative to the thing the chip is in is still small enough that um, you know customers aren't really giving Intel a big you know, problem with these prices. They seem to pretty well get price increases every year. They pay a little bit of a yield, 3%, uh, and that represents you know a third of earnings they're paying out as a dividend, so that looks pretty sustainable. Looking back uh, over the years here, you know, they've never cut the dividend, so that's nice. Enterprise value to EBITDA, or, you know, a look at what would we have to pay to own the whole company and the rights to the cash flow. In this case, it's a bit of a uh, theoretical exercise since the enterprise value is $106 billion, so we're not going to actually buy this company. But, um, they have uh, on the 106 billion that we would have to spend that would include all the stock at today's price plus the debt then we'd back out the cash uh, since uh, we don't need that to run the business and then the cash flow here um, I'm just doing the math on 40 percent operating margin on 45 billion in sales so uh, that's you know 18 and so 106 divided by 18 looks like it's about uh, 7. Is that right? 8? Uh, no, I guess it's what? 6, actually. 
So six times, 16% cash on cash return. <clears throat> Excuse me, I really got to practice my arithmetic. Um, uh, 16% cash on cash. So we pay 106, we get 18 in cash flow. I look at that as a 16% cash return, 16.6. And then I'm going to get some growth, which in, the, in this case, value line says is 18%. I don't, I don't believe that unless we're going to get a giant cyclical recovery. I mean, you know, the sustainable growth rate is some type of GDP growth rate plus the increase in market share that you get as a result of having a product that's involved in a productivity enhancing um, business. And so, but that can't go on forever, but still I might give them um, five or six percent growth, unit growth, and then there's some price, maybe 10 percent, 12 percent. I think these numbers are too high, but even still, um, I've got 16 percent cash on cash. Let's say I get 10 percent in growth. That's a mid-20s percent total return. You know, and again, I don't know when that's going to happen, but uh, presumably at some point the uh, stock price will reflect that valuation and the cash that's accruing will accrue also into the value of the company through reinvestment. And with a return on capital in the 20% range, you know, even though we talk about cash on cash, the fact is that they're investing it at 20%, um, you're happy to let them do that and let the value accrue um, in, in terms of the value of your shares. So um, Intel, I like it. Who knows when it's going to do better, but um, actually it's off the low. You know, you could have paid 12 for this last year. It's at 19, but the old high back in, uh, wow, well, this thing hit 75 back in the year 2000. You know, it was crazy internet days. But in recent times, uh, the high is around 30. It's at 19, and yet sales are nearly 30% larger than they were then with the same operating margin. So I think we'll get to that once people have a little more confidence that this recovery is real and that, you know, the economy will continue to grow as it has for 5,000 years. So Intel, ticker, INTC. Next up, Office Depot. And I'm just going to tell you right in advance. Here, i got to move my uh, recorder. I'm using my phone again. I'm just bare bones bare bones here, but um, Office Depot, ODP, a lot of baggage for me on this one. I own it. Um, you know, I bought it. Uh, I've owned it over a bunch of different periods. Bought it at 15 years ago, managed to sell it at 30, bought it at 15 again, and that was in uh, like 08, and then it plummeted to 70 cents. Can you imagine? So, Continued to buy it on the way down and got, you know, my average cost pretty low on it. And uh, it then moved to 9 It was at 9 earlier this year. Now it's back to $4. I'm not sure I understand what's going on with this exactly. And I'll tell you why. I mean, it's easy to see shuttered retail space and say, Office Depot, they're a goner or something like that. I mean, I get that. But uh, a couple of things. First... Um, people are still using office supplies. So I don't know if you work in an office, but look around. There's paper. There's desks. There's equipment. 
So we're not exactly paperless. Um, and, you know, most people have a printer on their desk now and a scanner. You look around, there's stacks of paper everywhere and, uh, and piles of pens and other crap. So I'm not buying that. I think what's happened is that a good 20% of their sales every year was related to new business formations where a bunch of people just got excited and they're like, wow, hey, we got funded. They went to an Office Depot or a Staples, which I'll give you is a little better run, but I'll get back to that in a minute. And they would just go out and, you know, outfit their office. And I'm going to think that that might have been an, on average, higher gross margin uh, sale than, you know, guys replenishing their paper clips in their stacks of paper, admittedly. But still, that lack of new business formation, I think, has moved its way through. How could it not? You know, we, we were two years into this. So the market seemed to start to feel a little more comfortable that we'd sort of found the point where there was an annuity. And I'd say, um, you know, the margins in this business are pretty skinny. And while Office Depot's been cutting costs, you know, uh, a few years ago they had an operating margin around 5%. Last year they, you know, they lost a little bit of money. Um, and this year they're estimated to do 1.5% margin. So they lost 400 basis points in margin because sales went from 15 billion to 12 billion. And so, you know, when you do that, um, you still have some overhead and such that's not fully absorbed as you drop sales. And gross margin is around 30%. So when you go from 15 billion to 12 billion, you lose 3 billion in sales at a 30% gross margin. You know, that's nearly a billion in gross income that you can use to cover your operating expenses. When that goes, uh, you know, you're going to have a tough time because I, you can read here in the text, you know, they've, they've cut hundreds of millions out of expenses, but when you lose a billion dollars in gross sales, you got to hustle to stay break even. And, uh, you know, their net margin at 5% um, back at 15 billion you know, that was a 600 or a little under 15. That was a 600 million net profit and, um, you know, a couple of billion in uh, operating profit. So you can see that when you lose the gross margin in sales, it comes right out of um, your operating income and it's very leveraged. And um, it looks like they're going to have to cut another couple hundred million. Eventually, you got to cut the whole billion out of your cost structure to get back to your former profitability because you lost the billion. And you got to readjust your optimal capacity. They've closed a bunch of stores. Obviously, they still have leases for a little while, but they've saved the labor. They save the investment in inventory, that sort of thing. Maybe they save, uh, you know, gas on where the trucks have to go or something like that. Who knows? advertising you know in those regions what have you but when you downscale you know you don't always lose all the benefits because uh, a regional warehouse you can't close if you just close a couple stores regional advertising you can't stop if you just close a couple stores so um, it's it's tricky on the way down I think that again in my rant up front so many people are hesitant to invest their capital when the rules of the road are so uncertain and this is directly coming out of Office Depot and Staples because 
What do you do when you start a business? It's honeymoon. You know, you feel good. You're buying a bunch of stuff. And so certainly ongoing business is going to continue to replace, but that's lower margin stuff generally, and you shop a little more. So, um, and I'll give you that uh, Staples is a little better run, but these guys are a low-cost producer. Not only do they have the stores, if you don't know the company, uh, but they do uh, giant mail-order business. In fact, they own Viking, which is the largest mail-order office supplies company in the world. They have 30% of their business, I think, is in Europe. They do business in 40 countries. Um, You know, one of the big fears here, again, as I watched the stock plummet a few years ago and, you know, and again recently, is that they have this big piece of debt that's due. And, you know, people saw their operating margin collapsing. and granted, um, you know, business is down, but it's not gone. And you got a layer of providers here that do have, in my view, higher costs than Office Depot. And that would be all the mom and pop station or stores that are still out there as a buffer. They're higher costs than Office Depot. And just like the uh, mom and pop pharmacies had 20% market share, you know, 15 years ago, and the big chains continued to move in. Uh, these guys have some you know, further room to go, not only on expansion of market share, um, but in terms of uh, you know being a destination and gaining share from those you know higher cost mom and pops. So you got that uh, to the extent that Office Depot's the biggest office uh, mail order office guy. I mean, mail orders gaining share, service levels are getting higher on the internet. Um, when partnered up with you know, FedEx or UPS, that whole delivery process is better than it ever was. You can track everything. So I think these guys have a place in the market. They are a low-cost producer, uh, you know, not as low-cost as Staples. But Staples, you got to pay a little bit more for Staples. The thing that gets me going on this is simply that it's less than 10% of revenue. And granted, it's a low-margin business, but they can pop a 4 or 5% margin and suddenly the thing moves to 50% of sales from 10% of sales. It's pretty powerful. As far as the debt being an issue, um, they've slowly built their cash to where it nearly offsets their total debt. The other thing I like about Office Depot when you start looking at management is the CEO here is a guy named Steve Odland, (coughs) who was the CEO of AutoZone during a period where AutoZone had to uh, meaningfully cut costs and improve uh, turnover in the stores, improve returns on capital. And he did an amazing job, bought a bunch of stock back. And I think over his reign there, uh, the stock was up tenfold and, you know, his job was done. That's why he came to Office Depot a few years ago. Now, in the case of uh, Office Depot, he's had some headwinds, mainly, um, this big recession. And, uh, I think, you know, there is something to be said for, um, you know, more and more business uh, being done in uh, in the home, on the road, etc. So I think that the office formations generally are going to have a lower growth rate than they maybe did pre-internet, uh, pre-mobile desktop, and all that. Um, but you're still going to have a need, and uh, and and these guys, I think, are going to be an important player uh, for years to come in that area. And the valuation is unbelievable. The total enterprise value here is about um, 
Well, it's a billion one market cap, the equity value, price times shares, plus seven hundred million in debt. <coughs> Gives me one point eight billion. Subtract out um, six hundred million, one point two billion. Now on this one, this would be one where I can't really use today's operating margin, in my view, as a true measure of what this thing can earn, but let's just use it anyway, just for just to see how silly it is. So for 2010, Value Line's projecting a 1.5% operating margin. That's on $3 billion in sales, less than they did in 06, and they've just been cutting costs like mad to get profitable. And I think that path of cost-cutting, right-sizing the infrastructure uh, to the level of sales is going to just continue and they're going to move back toward a 12, 13, 14% return on capital. This year they'll be at three because they're not done with the right sizing of the organization. So part of the bet here is simply that there's built-in profit growth simply through the ongoing um, gains in efficiency that'll come by you know, right-sizing the organization for the lower level of sales. So I'm, I'm kind of counting on that. But even at the 1.5% operating margin on $12 billion in sales, what's that? Um, uh, let's see, $180 million in operating income. And I've got EBITDA, I'm sorry, I've got enterprise value of $1.2 billion. And I've got $180 million, so... Again, what's that, six times? Is that the same bad math I was doing on Intel? I mean, that's cheap. And that's before I start thinking about a 3 or 4% operating margin. If Office Depot, through their uh, you know, trade knowledge, their uh, uh, ability to simply close things that aren't working, some of the reason they're not profitable is there's a bunch of stores that don't make money, so you close them down. Maybe you close whole cities that aren't working for you. You got to let the leases bleed off and all that. You may have commitments in advertising and all that. So it may be two years until you really start to see the benefits between, you know, closing that stuff down, paying pensions to or severance to people and all that. But <coughs> eventually you're going to eventually you're going to get it. And as I said earlier, with interest rates as low as they are, um, a buck two years from now, is worth like 95 cents now. You know, so it's uh, it's not so bad, or the reverse of that, I should say. But in other words, with low rates, you can afford to wait. You're not missing anything. And so here, if you did manage to earn a 4% operating margin on $12 billion in sales, or let's make the math easy and say it's 5%, that's $600 million. This thing would be selling at two times EBITDA, if they ever got back to a 5% operating margin, and I don't know that you want to rule it out. So that's why I'm in it. Office Depot, ODP. Wow, that went on, didn't it, ladies and gentlemen? I'm sorry. Okay, <coughs> and I seem to have developed a nasty cough. So I'm going to pause for just a minute here. Okay, sorry about that. Um, last up this week... And again, no page number, can I tell you? MKS Instruments, ticker MKSI. Um, hmm, Value Line has this rated too, so it's probably because it's got a little bit of an up, uptrend, and it's cheap. What doesn't have an uptrend right now? 
uh, over the last year or so. But what these guys do is they are a, a supplier of instruments and components used to measure, control, and analyze gases used in semiconductor manufacturing. So um, that speaks for itself, I guess. And it must be that with Intel cheap and with this cheap, you know, there's a big market bet that, um, you know, there's not going to be much capital spending going into this area or, uh, you know, it's got to be something like that, right? Um, and maybe that's going to be the case, but I, I kind of think we're going to get a little bit of a pickup in uh, technology spending. There's, uh, you know, a new generation of not only wireless equipment, but, um, um, you know, desktop equipment as well. And it's driving uh, a bit of a communication revolution in terms of VOIP, <coughs> uh, calls that go anywhere, calls that sync stuff with your computer and get data and pass documents. And so um, all that stuff takes semiconductors, pretty sure. And I'm, I've been looking for a chart of, uh, you know, just uh, in terms of uh, one way to measure what's really out there is just to measure the growth in electricity demand in some of the centers of, uh, of the knowledge industry. And maybe I'll talk about that in a future show, but it's pretty interesting. Unfortunately, the electric utilities just continue to be too expensive, but uh, that's another, another show. Uh, the thing that attracts me on this is it's it's ten times earnings, actually nine point six times earnings. <coughs> it's four times EBITDA. So again, how bad can things get? I look back over time. They're almost always profitable. They do a uh, well. I don't see. They don't tell me the gross margin here, but they're doing a uh, you know upper teens, mid teens operating margin. It's a little bit volatile, which just probably has to do with generations of product or something, or stepping stone, you know, stair-step um, product life cycles and that sort of thing. But they uh, they have a consistent profit uh, trend here, and their debt's low. It's they've got I'll just say ten million in debt, two hundred and eighty-five million in cash. That's pretty good. Uh, according to Value Line, um, there's greater demand. That's good. They're adapting their technologies for new markets like medical, <coughs> biopharmaceutical, environmental, solar. Those all are growth markets. That sounds good. Um, you know, I don't know. Let's see. Um, just looking at the tax rate here, I don't... Uh, you know, the tax rate's low, and so that helps explain some of the low multiple. But, you know, again, enterprise value to EBITDA, that's before taxes. So, um, now maybe they have a big tax liability and this cash is going somewhere. I mean, you got to do work on these things that look like something's up, and maybe I will. It's easy enough to go to... Um, you know, Edgar or something, and just check this out. <coughs> or even Yahoo Finance, for that matter. But on the surface here, it looks pretty interesting. 
They do something that's allowing them to return, you know, low teens returns on capital. They have almost no debt. They have $5 a share in cash on a $19 stock price. The Ioline says their earnings over the next five years are going to grow at 23%. Why do they think that? I don't know. I don't know. <coughs> uh, it doesn't really tell me why they're going to have such tremendous growth. It must just be that it's off, you know, a low base. Because they had, uh, you know, they nearly lost money. Well, they did lose a little money last year. Um, what can I tell you? I don't know much about it. They have instruments that help um, people produce flat panel displays, gas lasers, and solar cells. Those are all growing, I think, faster than the economy. So I like that wind at my back. It has, it, they make something that's helping other people be more productive, which means that the price of their product is just a small component of the total value of some system, <coughs> which generally means that they're best of class. They're competing with other guys within a system of scientists making decisions on a, you know, objective basis versus, uh, some sort of brand power or something that could fade. So I like that. Uh, you probably have to get used to some volatility and cyclicality, but this thing looks very interesting at four times EBITDA. I'm going to recommend it. MKS Instruments. MKSI is the ticker. And so that's it this week. Thanks for listening. It's been a little longer show than usual. And again, um, hopefully... Um, you know, you, you found some value here this week. Thanks for listening. My favorite this week is going to be, uh, <coughs> I think I'm a little emotionally attached to Office Depot. So I can't make that my favorite. Certainly look at it yourself and decide. You know, it looks pretty good. I'm going to have to go with um, Intel, ticker INTC. Thanks for listening. And everybody, this has been the July 9th. 2010 edition of the Value Line Observer. Um, check everything out at www.thevalueguys.com, all things value guys, and we'll see you next week, everyone. Bye bye.